Welcome to the City Road Podcast. Join us on City Road as we travel along the frontiers of urban and housing research. Follow us on Apple Podcast and find out more about the show at cityroadpod.org. In recent decades, the ability to shape the character and identity of a neighbourhood has involved a battle over protecting certain buildings from the city's past. In Washington, D.C., neighbourhood activists attempted to make themselves at home in the city by using the techniques of neighbourhood preservation. And what became clear in the process is that those who control a historical narrative about a neighbourhood often have the power to shape its character and identity. We're talking to Cameron Logan, author of Historic Capital, Preservation, Race and Real Estate in Washington, D.C., about the fragility of history and battles over the past in our cities. Cameron is an urban and architectural historian at the University of Sydney. Cameron, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You've uh, just written a book called Historic Capital. I would like to start with how you came, an Australian from Melbourne, came to be in the U.S. studying Washington. I was there somewhat accidentally, to tell you the truth, but uh, ultimately enrolled and uh, undertook a PhD in American Studies at George Washington University, which is in the uh, amusingly named Foggy Bottom neighbourhood, just a few blocks from uh, the White House. And my supervisor, who's an urban and architectural historian, Professor Richard Longstreth, uh, was interested in the sort of proposition I had, which was more general, didn't relate to Washington, and he said, you should do that project on Washington. So what is the proposition? Well, the proposition was basically that a vital form of urbanism under-recognised is the way we reevaluate, understand, and, and ultimately, in, in many cases, preserve the past. That this is a city-making project, not just a sort of building-preserving project uh, for for cities in the late 20th century, especially, uh, but but beyond that. And so I was looking at a, a project which was about how the past was reimagined and rethought through different kinds of exhibitionary or, or preservation projects. And he, he straight away said, you should look at Washington, and I, I start there. So that's back in <laughs> some time ago now, nearly 15 years. So I, I undertook a PhD there, completed that. It lay fallow for a little while from about 2008 onwards, but then I, I picked it back up as a book project a few years ago now and finally come to fruition. And we might get back to how that's relevant to what's happening in Australia or what the connections mm-hmm. or disconnections might be. But I'd like to start by going back to 1920s Washington. Yeah. What is unique about the place, the built form, the landscape, the neighbourhoods at that time? That's, that's a good question. I mean, Georgetown is not unique, but Georgetown is the place I talk about in Washington, D.C., uh, from that period that becomes prototypical as a historic neighbourhood, as your your classic sort of, you know, from today's perspective, gentrified neighbourhood. At that point, it was described as dowdy, a backwater. Other neighbourhoods had risen up to, to be the preeminent residential areas, places like, you know, people who know Washington, DuPont Circle, Logan Circle, Cleveland Park, which is a bit more of a suburban feel, but nevertheless within the District of Columbia. And, and Georgetown, it's the oldest part of the city which had been there, uh, which pre-existed the, the capital, the, the federal seat, as they used to call it, uh, had been a trading port, was had become by the end, you know, in the post-Civil War era and into the 1910s and 20s, hit on sort of not hard times exactly, but its, it's sort of uh, character had become a bit more uh, scrappy and it began to rejuvenate in that period. People who came to war, uh, Washington during World War I uh, for the war emergency moved there, fixed up houses, 
And then in the 1920s in particular, a new group arrived who saw in its kind of legacy of uh, colonial and federal era architecture a sort of opportunity to create something different, to restore houses, to they saw something of a sort of lost grandeur. And that was typical of southern cities in particular in that period, New Orleans to some extent, but especially Charleston, South Carolina. There was a kind of emerging genteel culture which wanted to appropriate that, that great era, that heroic and patriotic era in a sense by going back to the houses of, mm. the, of, the, of the late 18th century and early 19th and century. And is it just about the built form here or is it about the neighbourhood more generally? No, no, it's a, this is about progressive planning partly. Mm. Um, John Elder, the leader of that group who were in Georgetown at that time, was an expert in, in zoning and the new tools of, of urban planning. And he organised neighbours to you know, start a group. The Georgetown Homeowners Committee promoted this whole process and said we need to restore the houses prevent redevelopment uh, by apartment house developers because they're robbing your light and air and so forth. So it's the sort of process we would understand today as a sort of resident action group or, mm. or you know, your kind of local amenity group. It's mm. the same sort of stuff, but uh, right there at the beginning of, if you like, of city and regional planning. Move us forward in time, and I think your book starts a little bit later than this, doesn't it? I mean, I, I cover that example of Georgetown in that period as a sort of prototypical example of, of what happens. But the heart of the book is the period from the sort of 19, late 1950s through to the 1980s. I, you know, English architectural historian uh, Elaine Harwood described as the heroic period of conservation, sort of riffing off Alison Smithson's idea of the heroic period of modern architecture. And that, so Tell us a little bit about those ideas. Yeah, you know, the heroic period of conservation, so-called, is this period from the 60s through the 80s in which there's major ginning up of activity at the resident action level at the, as, a, as, a, as a movement, as well as innovation in policy and sort of management of the built environment with conservation at the forefront of it. So the book covers that period in, in most closely, and that's when you have the most significant battles around, I guess, the prospects of this, this terrain that I cover of the sort of historic environment of the inner city in Washington. Mm. Let's get into that case study in a little more depth here, but I'd first, I'd like to get you to define for us what this idea of historic capital is that you're playing with in this book. Right. Well, m- many of your listeners will be familiar with, uh, I guess, the idea uh, in the social sciences, and, uh, it comes out of sociology and associated with Pierre Bourdieu, in particular, a French sociologist, of cultural capital, the idea that one's wealth and power can be built not through simply through the means of um, financial resource, income and, and, and wealth, but can be constructed on the back of one's access to education, one's ability to discern, you know, make cultural judgments, mm. essentially. Who you are in the world, your it, parents, what school you went to, where your job is, yeah. your friendship networks, all of those yeah. things. And most powerfully, how one uh, makes a judgment of value about things that aren't given as valuable in dollar terms. That is ultimately where the source of cultural power comes from in, in Bourdieu's account. Now, I, I don't explicitly run through a lesson on Bourdieu in this book as not sort of... Um, sociological models driving the analysis primarily historical but the idea of historic capital it's a, it's a sort of a terrain that I'm talking about right the the historic part of Washington or the part that was made historic through preservation but I'm also explicitly referring to the process of making something historic is making uh, value judgments just like those cultural judgments I spoke of that confer power on the person who makes the judgment so if one has the power to say this is historic and is able to build the sort of social, uh, political coalition required to do that. I'm, I'm calling this, I guess, historic capital. It's the way in which one gains power, cultural power and authority to make the city 
through defining what's historic. And the, and the historical kind of elements to that include the built form, the social landscape, everything? Yeah, I mean, pe- people primarily saw it their, their target as preserving the neighbourhood as a set of buildings, but increasingly by the 1970s at least, it was the, the neighbourhood as a fulcrum for you know organic communities, for want of a better word, although they use terms like that, that had their own live set of you know, there was sort of social ecologies, I guess, in that classic sociological model and that re- that urban renewal tend to blow apart was the argument at the time. And so you're you're preserving also um, a physical framework for, for, for sort of social life that was also important. Give us a couple of examples. Okay, so key ones I deal with um, that really develop in, in this period in the 1960s and 1970s are DuPont Circle neighbourhood and Capitol Hill neighbourhood. They're historically connected in in an interesting way. One is the neighbourhood that sits behind, or if you like, behind or to the east of the US Capitol. And and you begin to see sort of restoration activity there in the late 50s. Describe to us the environment there. It's a neighbourhood with kind of uh, buildings from all periods, beginning in the kind of 1810s and 20s, but predominantly built and rebuilt in the latter decades of the 19th century. It's a Victorian row house neighbourhood. DuPont Circle, a little bit different, built similar period, sl- slightly more elaborately. It's more grandeur, some grander houses, and, and, and some of the elite lived on DuPont Circle um, at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. And so it, by the 1950s and 60s, people are doing up houses in both neighbourhoods, and there's two, two parallel pressures taking place. Congress it keeps expanding its footprint. And to do that, it keeps knocking down old houses. This mobilises sentiment for people who have been restoring these houses and see themselves as having been renewing the neighbourhood. Over in DuPont Circle, Washington's downtown is growing to the northwest. And that process is quite connected because why it's growing is because the people who come there to lobby uh, them from an industry point of view are driving office development. And they're driving office development up into what is an existing residential neighbourhood, a slightly sort of bohemian kind of residential neighbourhood at this point with a kind of, you know, down at heel Victorian architectural legacy that hippies and uh, students and whatever liked. But slowly, you know, in a process that we now are very familiar with, professionals start to move into this area and acquire a taste for this environment. Uh, and they begin to organise quite strongly against this process of encroaching downtown office development which they regard as generic and boring and blah 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 and and and, and destroying the neighborhood so you've got this these two counterweights at either you know end of the city in in terms of residential neighborhoods where the activist activity really gets going around the same time a bit earlier in capitol hill but by the late 60s they're both quite active Mm. and you're using this idea of history as a tool as a political tool in this process that's one way you're thinking about history in the past that's been mobilized as a tool to lobby for certain spatial outcomes in the city. Absolutely. I mean, historic preservation, as it's usually called in the United States or heritage conservation elsewhere, is you know usually that. It's that there is an entitlement, that the past is owed something, there's a certain quality to it. And there are two agendas usually b- built into that. One is environmental enhancement, essentially. The past delivers these particular physical qualities that we should have and we should build upon and protect. Uh, because what we'll replace it with will probably be worse. That's kind of one of the assumptions. The second one is a longer, a deeper tradition sense of sort of a kind of civic pride, the idea that one must, you know, owe something to history and build connections to place because of historic events and places that therefore should be protected. And and both these stories feed into it, but the sort of environmental enhancement, the idea that these are great 
living environments that shouldn't be destroyed is the primary driver. So mm. there's, you know, people enjoy the buildings and they enjoy what they, I suppose, what they mean uh, historically, but it's not because anything especially important happened there or that you're, you're sort of owing something to the people uh, who mm. lived there in the 19th century. It's really about the fact that they'd uh, bequeath this sort of legacy of, uh, uh, you know, of, of, of nice streets mostly and, and well, uh, well-maintained streets. Mm. And I guess the other part of the capital part is the capital that we might accumulate in these buildings themselves and in the neighbourhoods, the, well, the owners. So I think there's an interesting connection between preserving the past and building capital or even protecting capital. Right. So, I mean, one classic model for thinking about what preservation does is actually it comes into conflict with the forces of capital, usually because those depend upon destruction and remaking. You know, the, the classic creative destruction mm-hmm. model of urbanisation is how you accumulate capital in the, in the built environment. And, and this is one of the reasons why those people who advocate on behalf of preserving neighbourhoods, buildings, whatever, think of themselves as in often uh, in this sort of struggle against um, uh, destruction. Um, Capitalism. Uh, fil- even, yeah, even. the philistinism of, of, of sort of capitalist development. Yeah. However, what I make an argument in this that the ability to control uh, the process of making the past, of protecting the past, becomes uh, a mode of capital accumulation because what people use it as, in a sense, is a planning tool. So it's about a manner of accumulating capital in a way that is seen as a sort of fair and as having environmental respect as opposed to being uneven capitalist development, which they think of as, you know, the unplanned, um, uh, destructive mode. So, yeah, but, but ultimately I'm suggesting that the kind of hyper-gentrification that happens in, in the in-town parts of Washington in the 21st century is underpinned by this process of restoring houses and um, uh, renewing, I guess, the sort of resource base of the of the residential neighbourhoods. Mm. There's an interesting tension between the past, which you said in sometimes is constructed as better, a better environment that needs mm. to be preserved, and the future that potentially is not as good as a process, I guess, of creative destruction. How should we understand the politics that's being played out there? Well, the book actually is covers a whole arc from that moment I talked about Georgetown when we, when we started through to the 2000s. And one of the reasons I cover up to the 2000s is this moment when people start to value the urban renewal landscape. So in the 1950s and 60s, people, you know, uh, progressive planners and architects proposed basically replacing much of the in-town environment the kind of neighbourhood groups that I've been speaking of in places like DuPont Circle and Capitol Hill resist that process and the narrative eventually switches to piecemeal regeneration, housing restoration, private investment as opposed to a state-driven enterprise. And that happens partly because of a major urban renewal project in southwest Washington in the 19, late 50s and 60s which becomes highly controversial, uh, seen as an example of so-called Negro removal, uh, famous term invented by um, James Baldwin in the 1960s and, and taken up very widely. Um, and, and so that process was resisted and the idea of this uh, modern dispensation, an improved living environment based on modern transportation and dwelling modes you know, provided by the modern movement, gets essentially is, is rejected 
But a small portion, a fragment of it is constructed. And in the 2000s, interestingly enough, people then are trying to preserve that. Mm. And this is a sort of end point for the story in a way where the image of the past as the row house neighbourhood is no longer the only past, but people start to look to other pasts and they start to see other problems that they're trying to address and other ways of thinking about the city. And they think about protecting, in fact, the... Uh, the landscape of urban renewal. So that's mm. kind of a it's kind of an endpoint in a way for the story. It's a very interesting question. I've been thinking about that a lot in terms of somewhere like Sydney, mm. where we will get to a point where we start renewing the former renewal project. Well, I mean, the dynamics that were going on in Washington a decade or so ago, and that in some ways are uh, coming up in some in some slightly different ways, are of course playing out in Sydney now. We're looking precisely at some of the key uh, redevelopment controversies relating to Waterloo, mm. Sirius, even are about the legacy of, you know, oh, call it the welfare state, or I suppose an optimistic and, and social and public mission, which part of which urban renewal in some dimensions was mm. uh, in the United States, and. That's the attempt to remake and say that that's an entirely failed project and it should be remade. Some people are now resisting and saying, no, hang on, there's some things about that we should look to and, and, and even some of it we should preserve. Mm. You touched on the racial dimension to this. Does race, well, race always plays out quite strongly in urban questions in the US. Does it play out in this book? Absolutely, yeah. yeah the subtitle of the book is Preservation, Race and Real Estate. And the, the racial question is... The social politics of how you remake the city always framed through race in Washington, D.C., as they are in many other American cities. The, the particular configurations of that are different in different cities, of course. But Washington uh, was one of the first big American cities with a black mayor. Uh, it was one of the first big American cities with a black majority. And it had a salient black middle class, uh, which is different to some other American cities where um African-Americans were mostly working class or an underclass. Washington had that, but it also had a large middle class that had worked for government and in the city for, for in the cultural sector for a long time and had, I suppose, uh, a stronger seat, a stronger voice in some respects than in some other cities. Mm. I'd like to ask you about remembrance, about how we remember the past and how that might play out in here. It's, I'm putting on my quasi kind of historian hat here to think about the politics of memory and how that might play out in almost the selective way that some things get remembered and some things are to be forgotten. Even the framing of the houses, why these houses and not other houses, why this landscape, not that landscape. Right. Uh, I mean, one of the things um, that plays out interestingly is right at the moment when uh, the neighbourhood groups, you know, the Capitol Hill Restoration Society, the DuPont Circle Conservancy, these neighbourhood-based preservation or, and restoration-oriented groups are reaching their strongest moment in the 1970s, parallels the moment when um, the idea of African-American history or black history becomes much stronger. And different neighbourhood groups understand and interact with this process quite differently. And so basically in DuPont Circle, to take one example, they, they kind of miss the point in a, in a way. They think that taking or looking at these social aspects of the history of the neighbourhood is somehow a bit arbitrary and might even be sort of racist in a funny way. It should just be like, these are the houses and this is what it is. But of course, built into all that was a whole lot of assumptions that a group of white property owners should be the ones who determine the shape and the the writing of what is culturally significant or historically significant about that place. And they, they ran into a big conflict with their neighbours in New Street and Shaw, which is a sort of neighbouring area that they were encroaching on in a certain way with their historic district nomination. 
and it becomes a major uh, fight between the, the two groups, which was really from a, a complete um, blindness on the part of the, some of the DuPont Circle group about how their effort could be perceived as not necessarily in everyone's interest. They just thought they were acting in a universal interest. Of course, that was read as a particular interest and, as, and, as, and through a sort of racial lens. Mm-hmm. I guess I can't not ask you about, given that this is in Washington, about citizenship mm-hmm. and Australia and the US both have very strong connections between how we live in and consume real estate and who we think we are as mm-hmm. people and as citizens. What does this story tell us about citizenship? Um, yeah, well, what it, I mean, basically what it tells us is that the claims made by Washingtonians in this period were explicitly citizenship claims. They were to say, we uh, inhabitants of this city, we're not, and we're citizens, you know, we're civically invested in it um, by identifying with these neighbourhoods. And in some ways that was a process that had to be sort of made even more explicit because the city was fed, is federal, because it seemed to belong to the nation, not to the inhabitants of that city. Their project of uh, preserving neighbourhoods was to say we're identifying with the city where we're, we're sort of engaging in a sort of form of place-based citizenship is what I, I call it. That had a national frame, is that what you're getting at Yeah, there? well, well what it, Washington was assumed to, to have a national image. When people say Washington on the news, they actually mean political Washington or they mean monumental Washington. Uh, this was an attempt in a, in a sense to reframe that by local inhabitants and say this is also uh, a place with identity and meaning. It's not just federal enclave and we're not you know we're, we're not just sort of boarding here to you know a sort of garrisoned army of clerks you know mm-hmm. clerks you know <laughs> clerks mm-hmm. the americans would say yeah. uh, we're some we're citizens who make places form communities form associations and care about the the stakes of what happens in these places over time we've touched on this a little bit but what does the book and the case studies tell us about what's happening in australia at the moment yeah, well, what, I mean, what, are, what are the universal lessons? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, one is one is that, that thing we were just talking about, that sense that people will identify with places, whether or not they're connected to those deeply through long family ties. There, there's, a, there's a hunger that was expressed very powerfully through the later decades of the 20th century to feel an identification with place which transcends your moment in that place and connects to people of the past and to the future, because that's part of the effort, of course, is to say, oh, we owe an obligation to the future to protect these places because we think they're culturally significant. They're, well, at least they're very nice and we shouldn't destroy them. So that that's a sort of attempt to connect beyond this, the frame of your own lifetime and therefore to also say you're part, you're part of a sort of a continuum of city-making. And so that's, that's one of them that I think, and, and that's one thing that planners and urbanists in Sydney today need to understand when they encounter residence groups that seem perhaps just intransigently interested in their own amenity and their own private sort of wealth or, or you know, the, the, the privilege of their amenity is that there are several strands, one of which might be simply we have the power to stop things happening, which is a sort of relatively reflexive thing for people in cities around the world who are in what they regard as nice places to see any change in development as probably detrimental. Um, and that's difficult for planners and urbanists and architects to deal with anywhere, and that's and it's definitely true here. But there are other threads running into that, which where people do really want to be part of a collective project of making a city over 
generations. And that's, I think, one thing we have to acknowledge, even whilst working against perhaps some of the more conservative tendencies to just reflexively stop change. Cameron, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Dallas. So that's it for this week. But remember, we'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review via iTunes podcast site. Just hit the subscribe link on our website at cityroadpod.org.